Welcome to the Two Journeys Podcast. We're so thankful that you've taken the time to join us today and want you to know that this is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 10 in the book of 1 Peter entitled Healthy Church Life in a World of Suffering, where we'll discuss 1 Peter chapter 5 verses 1 through 14. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses we're looking at today? Well, it's been helpful for us to realize that the Apostle Peter is writing to people who are going through suffering. They're going through difficulties as aliens and strangers in a hostile world. And he's given a lot of practical advice, a lot of help to various categories of people. Here at the end, it seems that he's pointing toward a healthy church, godly elders, who shepherd as under shepherds under Christ, shepherd God's flock, young men who are submissive to their elders and who fit together well, and this kind of represents the local church. And so therefore, one of the great graces that God gives to suffering people in this hostile world are healthy churches. And so he's going to talk about healthy church life. He's going to continue to talk about dealing with the sufferings that we have by being humble under God's mighty hand and being aware of Satan's activity. So all of these things are in view as we finish this epistle today. All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and read 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders." Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So, Andy, let's talk first about the role of elders in healthy church life, Mm -hmm. really verses 1 through 4. Who are elders in the life of a church, and what should we find noteworthy about Peter's description of himself in verse 1? Right. So elders, we believe, are given by God the temporal leadership of a local church. We believe in a plurality of elders because he mentions it here to the elders among you. And uh, we we think this is one of the great graces that God has given. There's a built-in structure of leadership for the local church, but also built-in accountability uh, because the elders all share equally in responsibility to shepherd the flock. They share equally in authority. Um, They are co-equals with one another. Uh, There is a sense of shared vision, a sense of shared leadership. 
than the church, uh, represented in verse 5 by young men, being submissive to the elders, we see a beautiful submission of the church to the leadership of the elders. For us as Baptists, we are congregationalists, meaning that we believe that the elders do not get their authority apart from the will of the people, apart from a vote of the church. And so there's a beautiful check and balance uh, here. Uh, many churches have a single elder model, and I understand that. Uh, I do believe that plural leadership is an anomaly in the world. Uh, you don't see it in the Christian family where the husband is the head. Uh, we don't see that generally in any entity. It's generally inefficient. But in local churches, there's not usually a need for instant decisions like there would be on the on the bridge of a, of a naval vessel during a battle uh, or a military commander where there's somebody in charge making that final decision. Mm. And so usually the church has time, uh, the elders of the church have time to pray over it and come to consensus, to come to unanimity. Uh, but it's a beautiful grace. And so Peter is addressing the elders and giving them insight, and we'll talk about that. And he calls himself a fellow elder. So it's interesting. He is an apostle, perhaps the chief apostle, the lead apostle, but he chooses here to call himself an elder, one mm -hmm. of the elders of his local church. So it's a beautiful thing that he says here. It is. So what does it mean then to act as a shepherd for God's flock, and what does the image of God's people as sheep teach us. Right. So I think there are uh, three different titles for the same office uh, that we have. We have uh, the elders here, uh, and that would be presbyteros, from which the Presbyterian denomination gets its name. Uh, you have overseers, and you have that sense of, of oversight he's going to use in verse 2, overseers episkopos, from which the Episcopalian church gets its name. Uh, and then you have pastors, which is, uh, no, it's not really found anywhere, but the activity of shepherding is mm -hmm. used. And again, that same language here, poimain. So all three titles, such as pastor, overseer, elder, really represent the same office, just different titles for the same office. We think they're, they're, uh, they're equivalent titles. And so uh, the idea here is one of shepherding the flock. So the episkopos, the idea of being an overseer, bishop is just an old English way of, of saying the same thing, the one who is, is above or over the flock looking down on it. Again, not in a lording it over sense, and he's going to talk about that. You know, no, we're not lording it over uh, those. It's more of a perspective. You're able from the hill to see where all the sheep are. You're mm -hmm. able to see if any are wandering. That's mm -hmm. the, it's like a, a metaphor for a perspective. And the perspective, I think, uh, comes from age, from experience. That's where you get the title of elders. Now, I think a young man like Timothy can be an elder, but the general approach is one of spiritual maturity. You've had some years behind you. You're not a recent convert. And so you're humble. You've seen God's grace at work. And from that perspective, you're able to shepherd the flock. Now, this image of God's people as sheep is predominant in the Bible. Mm -hmm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Most famous psalm there is, Psalm 23. Uh, but we are his flock and he, we are the sheep of his hand, it says in another psalm. The idea of, of God's people as sheep and the, the fact of the leaders as shepherds is a, is a well-established theme in the Old Testament. The thing about sheep, this is really interesting, uh, that they are slow, stupid, and delicious. I think would be three things we could characterize. They really kind of defy natural selection, Darwin, mm. Darwinism. I, what, how, do you, how do you account for them surviving? Well, they survive by the shepherd hmm. because they just follow their nose for the next tuft of sweet grass. They don't really know where they are. There are wolves. There are, are lions later. Uh, there are predators. Satan is a predator prowling around seeking someone to devour. Hmm. 
And so the, the, that God's people are likened to sheep, it's not meant to be insulting, but it is meant to be humbling. We, are, we need protection. We need to be shepherded. And so God chooses some of the sheep. We are sheep, but we're also called on to be under shepherds to, uh, to shepherd God's flock. And so that's a beautiful image. The idea here is to protect God's people and to feed God's people. Feed my sheep, um, the Lord told Peter. And so we have this same image here of feeding the flock. So I, I think of feeding and I think of protection and I also think of leadership. These are things that, uh, that elders are called to do. Mm. Now, amongst those who are or would be elders, what attitudes or motivations does Peter seek to weed out in verses 2 and 3? All right. Well, he's weeding out false motives. First of all, you know, you think about worldliness. Um, there are the, these letters, uh, the letter P, these things that begin with P. You've got power, pleasure, and possessions, uh, those kinds of things. Uh, prestige would be uh, rolled in there as well, as well. These are things that worldly people seek. Mm. These are things that, as Jesus said, the rulers of the Gentiles seek. They're looking for positions and power. They're looking for prestige. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi, the teachers of the law in Jesus' day. Uh, possessions, they devoured widows' homes, Jesus said. So they're, they're, they're plundering the people. These are things that um, elders, godly elders, should never seek. That's not why you go into it. And so Peter talks about that, that you're, uh, you're doing it because you're willing. Why do you do it? You're not, you're not under compulsion. Uh, you're not you're not forced to do it against your will. You're doing it because you want to do it, mm. and God makes you willing. And again, not greedy for money, but eager to serve. You're doing it because you want to be a servant, as Jesus was washing uh, the feet. You're not lording it over those entrusted to you. You're not looking for that prestige and that power. You're not domineering. Uh, there's no eagerness for authority here among the elders. Just. You have authority, you want to use the church's time and energy and money wisely and make good decisions, but you're not in it for that. You're not there because you have the authority to make decisions and give commands. So the, he's really weeding out false motives for being elders here. Yeah, that's so helpful. I want to zero in on one of those phrases you mentioned in verse 2. Uh, why is it so important for elders to shepherd the flock eagerly and not mm -hmm. under compulsion? That couplet right. there. Well, I go in my mind over to Hebrews 13, 17, where it says, um, uh, you know, submit to those who are over you, who keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Obey them, he says, so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, mm. because that would be of no advantage for, uh, for you. You don't want your pastors, you don't want your elders to feel it's a burden to be a shepherd uh, of that flock. Yeah. And there are some that, um, you know, there, there's some sheep that can make things difficult for the shepherd. Someone once said, I heard this, uh, said that sick sheep bite. Um, and so the idea is that they can be prideful, they can, can lash out, and that, that makes it very, very difficult to shepherd that flock. So Hebrews 13, 17 certain, uh, implies that one of the great stewardships of a congregation is the happiness of their pastors, mm. that they actually enjoy pastoring that church. They're delighted to be with, with God's people. They enjoy uh, the people who are in that flock. Well the elders themselves need to come into their ministry with that attitude. It's like, I can't wait to be an elder. It's such a delight to have and a privilege to be able to shepherd. So this is a great stewardship. So you go into it willingly, not under compulsion, and not greedy. 
Uh, you're not forced. You're not compelled by money. You're not compelled by anything but just a simple desire to serve. Mm. So it's good for the, the elder then to be eager to serve, but mm. also to not be domineering like you mentioned. Mm. Uh, it's really a danger to the health of the church. Yeah. Maybe talk a little bit about how a plurality of elders might help to guard sure. against this. There's a really, really bad history of this, I, I think, ultimately about the medieval papacy mm. and even to this present day. There are trappings of glory, earthly glory, and trappings of power. Uh, when you approached the, the Pope, you would kneel down and kiss his ring. Uh, there was just a tremendous amount of lording it over with, especially the medieval papacy, although still today there's, there's still that sense. Um, it doesn't line up at all with the image of a humble servant leader that Jesus said, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So there is this sense of not lording it over. I quoted this earlier, but I'll say it again. The, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees uh, love to walk around in flowing robes and to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have the places of honor at the banquets mm -hmm. and the most important seats in the synagogues. And then interpersonally, they, they just dominated people. They lorded it over them. All of those things are weeded out by these teachings, by Jesus' teachings earlier and Peter referring to them, not lording it over. There's, there's a sense that you're no better than anyone. You have a role, you have a responsibility. It's given to you by God, you're faithful to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, frankly, neither side should lord it over. The church shouldn't lord it over the pastors either. Sometimes that can happen, where you're seen to be a hired hand. You're an employee, and you know the personnel committee has the power to fire you, that kind mm -hmm. of thing. That's, that's lording it over in the other sense. There shouldn't be any lording it over either way. So these, in particular, the, the uh, overseers, need to be humble. They need to realize every one of the people that they're shepherding are their brothers and sisters in Christ and equal before the throne, before the cross. And we're gonna stand on equal footing uh, in our redemption in heaven. So there's just a basic humility that we need to have as godly shepherds. And I think in that way, elders fulfill the end of verse three that says that uh, elders ought to be an example to the flock. Because right. we're about to talk about humility and mm -hmm. what better way for elders to model what godly uh, Christ-like living looks like then in that sense of humility. And some of that comes from uh, what follows in verse 4, knowing that the chief shepherd will appear. Verse 4 says, when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Who is this chief shepherd and what is this reward that faithful elders faithful Christians, but specifically faithful elders can look forward to when Christ appears? Well, he's clearly talking about Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd. And um, when Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? Three times in, in John 21, um, you know I love you, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed my sheep, that kind of thing. He's giving orders to Peter to be a shepherd. So that shepherd, Peter, is under a higher shepherd Jesus. So that's where we get the idea of the chief shepherd. He is the one who rules over all shepherds. Mm. And so it's good for all pastors to realize there is someone above them. Mm. Also, it's good for us to realize we never shed our blood for the, for the church. Mm. Jesus shed his blood for his bride. He died for her. We didn't. And so the, the church belongs to Christ. And like John the Baptist said, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. And so that's the, the idea. We, uh, the church belongs to him by purchase and by, by election. And so he is the chief shepherd, but uh, he also has the power to reward faithful service. So when he comes, when he appears, he will reward 
elders, he will reward pastors for their faithful service. So we should do it with an eye to the reward. We should, we should always be yearning for rewards, to have as many rewards as possible, with no, no shame in that. It's not a, a guilty thing. It's something we, sh- we are actually commanded in Hebrews 11, uh, 6, to believe that God rewards those who diligently seek him, and we would say also who diligently serve him. And so there is a reward waiting for all faithful service, whether somebody's an elder or not. All Christians will be rewarded when the chief shepherd appears. And he's going to reward faithful service. Uh, the crown of glory you will receive, a glorious crown that will never fade away. Mm. And so I think about uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, beats his body and makes it his slave so that after preaching to others, he wouldn't be disqualified. And I think that crown that he has in mind there is of faithful service as an evangelist and as a pastor. That's a glorious crown that will never fade. Okay, next we want to dig into Peter's exhortation to be humble under God's mighty hand. And why is Glad's submission to the authority of elders so vital to the health of a church? And this comes at the beginning of this section, at the beginning of verse 5 here. Sure. Yeah, so the young men, first of all, we just need to realize there are benefits to the different stages of life. Mm. So young men have certain benefits and advantages that old, older men don't have. And older men have certain advantages and benefits that the younger men don't have. Mm. And they really need to work together. So healthy churches are multi-generational and every level of development is esteemed and cherished, including little children. Let the little children come to me. Mm. And, And if you do not receive the kingdom of God like a little child, you'll never enter it. So we get to constantly see little children running and playing and laughing and realize there is an element of that that should be in us as we approach Christ. But all the way through. So what do young men have? They have vision. They have energy. They have passion. They're idealistic. Uh, They think anything can happen. They expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. But all of that energy can go off in the wrong direction. And so the elders have fought many battles. They have wounds from their battles. They were young men once too, and they were visionary, and they, they dreamed dreams, and they went out on their dreams, and many of them turned out exactly like they hoped, but many of them didn't. And so they have some experience, and they have, they have wisdom, and the two really are a great combination when you have the two of them together, but God has put the power, the authority to make decisions and what direction to go in the hands of the elders. And so all that youthful energy and vigor and drive gets harnessed in the wise direction uh, that the elders think they should go in. And so if the young men aren't submissive to the elders, there's gonna be problems, Mm -hmm. there's gonna be chafing. And so instead it's beautiful when they work together because frankly, there are weaknesses to each as well. Older men can be be, um, cynical maybe. Uh, not want to try anything more, you know, can rest on their laurels or just be weary uh, or maybe even a little depressed or sad at, at the things that they've seen go wrong. And they need that idealistic energy and vision that the young men can give. Mm. And the young, the young men, well, they like wisdom and they can go off in a wrong direction, et cetera. So the submission here, and, and the word submissive is very important. That has to do with yielding to God-ordained authority. So it's not just, you know, being respectful, et cetera. It, it means obeying what the elders decide to do. Mm. That's what it means. So then, as verse 5 continues, how do we clothe ourselves or put on a virtue like Mm -hmm. humility as though it were clothing? Mm -hmm. And how might we show that much of the gospel's work in the human heart is to humble us? Yeah, pride is at the root of all of our sinfulness. St. Augustine said it's the root of really all our sins in some, Mm. some way, depending on how you look at it really, is that selfishness. 
And so therefore, I believe that every aspect of our salvation is meant to slaughter our pride, to humble us. Justification by faith alone, apart from works, humbles us. Sanctification by a cooperative effort between us and the Holy Spirit humbles us. Glorification will humble us because in an instant, God will touch us and make us perfect, the very thing we tried for every day of our Christian lives and never attained. And before any of that, election uh, in the eternal counsels of God, before the foundation of the world, before we had done anything good or bad, humbles us. The whole thing's humbling. So therefore, in sanctification, which is what the local churches are all about, as we're zeroing in on, on the growth of Christians, we are called on to be humble. God opposes the proud because grace to the humble, mm. which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, but fundamentally, the idea is that God means for us to clothe ourselves with humility. And so I like that clothing image. You can put it on. Say, I'm not very humble on the inside, but I'm going to act humble on the outside. It's like, well, it's better to be humble on the inside. But the humbling, the true humbling of a heart is a life work. So what we can do in the meantime before we're truly humble is to realize how humble we should be because we are sinners saved by grace and other people are every bit as much loved as we are and gifted as well, mm. and that we should talk to ourselves the language of humility and then put on robes of humility as we approach each other and listen to each other mm. and, and grant each other benefits and look for other people's interests, not your own, those kinds of, that's what I think it means to clothe yourself with humility. That's so helpful. Now, since grace is always given to sinners despite mm -hmm. their sinfulness, what does it teach us that God gives grace mm -hmm. to the humble? You talked about this phrase a moment ago. Let's yeah. dig into it a little bit. God opposes the proud, mm -hmm. but gives grace to the humble. Well, it's in the Bible twice. It's in James as well, uh, the New Testament. I think it's also a quotation from the Old Testament as well. And so the idea here is, um, first of all, God opposes the proud. That's terrifying. Imagine omnipotence against you. Mm -hmm. Now, God gently opposes us, but um, you know, as, as someone once said, your arm's too short to box with God. So you can imagine you know, a world heavyweight champion taking on some 13-year-old kid who's full of vim and vinegar, and he just puts his hand on his forehead while the kid is swinging and hitting the air. It's like God is very gentle, but he's fighting you. He's opposing you. So if you're proud, God's going to work against you but he gives grace to the humble. So if you will humble yourself before God, he'll cover your sin and he'll compensate for your sin. So grace is always about sin. Mm. So he's gonna cover your sins and then he's going to give you restraining grace to keep you from messing up still more. And he's gonna give you compensating grace um, to enable you to do good things despite your weaknesses and your mm. pride and your selfishness. So we need a lot of help. So God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I think it speaks to what you were mentioning a moment ago, how interlaced pride is in so much of our sinfulness and how it especially rears its head uh, in in moments where we would rise up and perhaps think our own perspective or opinion is best. Yeah. I just feel like it's the central work that needs to happen in me every single day mm. is to humble me. Yeah. Now, what does it mean practically in verse six to humble ourselves under God's hand? And what does it mean that God will lift us up or exalt us at the proper time? Oh, what a powerful, powerful verse, First Peter 5, 6 is, especially when you consider the context of persecution, the context of affliction, of crosses and difficulties and adverse providences and things like that, mm. that we would not chafe or murmur or argue against God or get angry at God, but with the difficulties that are going on in our lives, that we would humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. Realize He has measured out everything that's happened to us, how vast 
are God's thoughts toward us or concerning us? How vast the sum of them. Were we to number them, they would outnumber the grains of sand in the seashore, Psalm 139. God has comprehensively thought about us and has chosen from time to time to afflict us. The best thing we can do when afflicted, when going through painful circumstances, is to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand mm -hmm. and not fight against him. In general, even if we're not going through afflictions, we should begin every day in our quiet times humbling ourselves under God's mighty hand. Circle back again to the cross. Remind yourself who you are. You are a sinner saved by grace. Go back to Isaiah 6, mm -hmm. where even the holy seraphim cover their faces before God because they're creatures and not the creator. They've never sinned, and yet they cover their faces. Mm. Humble, humble, humble. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand, and then let him lift you up. Whatever lift you up means, let him give you energy. Let him give you honors. Let him give you privileges and, and positions of authority in the church or, or various ministries. Mm. He'll lift you up whatever level he chooses for you, but first you have to humble yourself before his hand. Mm. Now, before we move on to verses 8 through 11, how can we practically obey the command in verse 7 mm -hmm. to cast our anxieties on God? Why is this difficult, and what role does prayer play? Well, in the larger context of this epistle, Peter is writing to suffering people who are aliens and strangers. They might have a wicked um, master. They might have an unbelieving spouse. Uh, they might be being persecuted by their neighbors. All of those things. And then beyond that, they're just the life anxieties that we face all the time, being anxious about food, what we'll eat, about our clothes, what we'll wear, and as Jesus addresses in Matthew 6. There's all kinds of anxieties. I find that anxiety, uh, maybe one definition, is a, a, not definition, but a description. Anxiety is a bad use of the good gift of an Im imagination. Hmm. You imagine what the future will be like, and you imagine dire circumstances, most of which never happen. So anxiety is a dishonor to God. We need to get rid of it. There's no anxieties ever that are godly or glorifying to God. And so take all of your anxieties, your fears about the future, where it's all leading, where it's all heading, and cast them on the Lord because he cares for you. So the idea here is, is just taking them as this massive burden on your spiritual shoulders and just roll them off onto the might, into the mighty hands of God and let him take care of you because he cares for you, it says. Cast all your anxiety. Now, someone once said, don't be like a, like, like a, a fishing casting, you know, where you have a fishing rod with a line. And so you cast the thing out and then reel it back in. We do that, don't we? Yeah. We cast anxieties mm. and then we find ourselves thinking about them again. Mm. Don't do that. Cut like the line. Casting it off a cliff. Like, <laughs> yeah. let it go. Yeah, let it go. Oh, don't bring it back. Trust that God is, exactly. is good and cares for us. Hmm. Well, the next section, verses 8 through 11, shows us that we must vigilantly resist the devil. Mm -hmm. Why must we be constantly vigilant in resisting the devil? And what role does sober-mindedness play in this? Yeah, he says uh, we, we need to be sober-minded. Uh, we need to be alert. Um, I have been amazed, as I'm doing scripture memorization right now in mm -hmm. the Gospel of Mark, how active demons were. Uh, in Jesus' ministry, how many demon-possessed people he, he dealt with. Mm -hmm. And we cannot imagine that demons are any less active in 21st century America than they ever were in first century Palestine. They're, they're active. They just use different techniques because we're a scientific, materialistic people. We don't think they exist. That's Satan's work. And so fundamentally, he is at work uh, and we need to realize that Satan and the devil and his angels, so that's demons, are constantly active. 
I believe that 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 we don't deal directly with Satan because we're small potatoes. All right, mm-hmm. he's dealing with with the movers and shakers. We're, he's dealing with massive, uh, powerful entities. But his kingdom is vast and powerful. And there are demons mm-hmm. who are assigned to us and who study us and make our lives miserable. So we can say it's Satan. We're fighting Satan, but we're ultimately fighting his kingdom. So we we need to be alert, be aware. To today, mm-hmm. Satan wants to come after you. There are mm-hmm. two great things Satan does temptations and accusations, luring you into sin and then accusing you so that you're beaten down with your wickedness and you're you're just distraught and distressed and depressed and of no use to God. So that's what Satan does. We need to be aware. He is a lion mm. prowling, mm. prowling around, he says, seeking someone to devour. Uh, the image I had some months ago is the foolishness of going out on safari in Tanzania, let's say, and you go out, yeah, this is lion country for real. And you decide you're gonna get, you're gonna sleep out in the open air. You're gonna look at the stars, mm, and you're no out on the ground. Pollution, it's great. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's just amazing the view you get of the stars. You don't see these back in the big city, mm-hmm. and you're just out there. What a fool! They are night predators. They're coming after you. You will not survive the night. So don't be an idiot. <laughs> so spiritually, be aware that your enemy, the devil. Now that's mm-hmm. powerful, isn't it? Galatians two twenty says, Christ loved me and gave himself. For me, Paul said that, I have a personal savior. This verse tells me I have a personal enemy. Mm. I have an enemy who's coming after me, a soul assassin coming after me. He is looking for someone to devour. So how then do we resist the devil and how might it help us to know that our brothers and sisters throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of sufferings? Yeah, it's the same thing. It's the same menu that he offers all around the world. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. It's the same kind of things. And we're going through that. So first of all, let's just be simple. Our brothers and sisters throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering, meaning we should pray for them. We should pray for each other. Mm. We should care every bit as much how it's going with a brother or sister as it's going with us. They're being assaulted by the, the devil too. Mm. We should realize that in marriage. We should not um, you know, uh, listen to Satan's accusations of our spouse or make their lives miserable. We should not be taken captive by the devil to do his will in our spouse's life. We mm. need to be very, very careful. So they're going through the same kinds of sufferings. Let's be sympathetic when people sin against us. Let's realize, look, I've done the same kinds of things. But also realize you're not weird. The things you're struggling with, you're, mm. you're, the lusts you're battling are the same all over the world. The struggles you're having are the same all over the world. Satan's doing the same things all over the world. Yeah, that idea that the temptations that we face are common to man, like 1 mm-hmm. Corinthians 10 reminds us, it's, yep. it's helpful for us to keep uh, at the front of our minds as we struggle together. Mm-hmm. Now, in verse 10, what can we learn about how God limits the devil's access to us? And what does God promise to do after we've suffered for a little while? Very, very important, important for us to realize the devil is on a leash mm. when it comes to the sheep. Um, he is, he's on a leash. He can't do whatever he wants. He can't go wherever he wants to go. He actually has to ask permission to tempt us and test us. Mm. And so how do we know that? Well, it says, you know, that God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. So God limits the magnitude of the temptation. He limits what the temptation can be from Job chapter one and Job chapter two. He's, he's put a hedge of protection around us so that Satan can't do whatever he wants to us. And he limits in this text how long it's going to last. Yeah. It doesn't go on forever. You know, after you've suffered a little while, 
God will restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. So it's not going to go on forever. He says in Revelation, uh, the devil is asked to test you for 10 days. And so it's this limited time. So just hang in there, stand firm, say no, say no, say no to the temptation. Mm-hmm. At some point, it'll abate. You don't have to keep doing this forever. The Lord himself will drag the devil away for a time. But even in Jesus' day, he's going to come back. So in the meantime, we we have a respite. So after, after we've suffered a little while, the Lord will restore us and make us strong, firm, and steadfast. Yeah, I love verse 11, kind of this mm-hmm. one-verse doxology where Peter then just ascribes to God the dominion that's his. He mm-hmm. has dominion over all things. Amen. So that should give us Praise hope God. as we suffer. Mm-hmm. The final section here speaks of standing fast in grace, verses 12 mm-hmm. through 14. What do these verses teach us about how and why Peter wrote this letter? What does it mean to stand firm in grace? Walk us through these last few verses and any final thoughts you have for us on this chapter and really First Peter as we bring it to a close. It's very, very powerful. First of all, it's just cool that he wrote it with Silas. Um, so that was Paul's traveling companion. Mm-hmm. Paul and Silas went uh, were there in the Philippian jail. And here's with Peter writing this, helping him write this epistle. And it's wow. beautiful. Um, so we'll find more about si- Silas when we get to heaven. What a marvelous thing. And he says, yeah, I regard him as a faithful brother. And then he says, I've written you just a short epistle, just a little epistle, but how rich it's been. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. And he says, I'm encouraging and, and, te- and testifying, he says, <clears throat> excuse me, that this is the true grace of God in Christ Jesus. Stand firm in it or stand fast in it. So the epistles, like Paul's epistles, roll out words of grace. As we drink them in, study them, meditate on them, and then put them into practice, that is where the circle of grace is. That's where the power is. That's where the safety is stand in it. So we're called on, as in Ephesians 6, to put on the full armor of God and stand fast in it. So I also like in Romans chapter 5, the grace of God is something we're standing in. We're standing in grace. I like it like a hot shower. All of this nasty stuff comes out of our spiritual pores, and then the grace of God just washes it away as soon as it happens. We're under the grace of God in this grace in which we now stand. It says in Romans 5 verse 2. It's so beautiful. So he's urging then the flock to stand fast in the grace of God. He also talks about the church in Babylon. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you. This is a very weighty topic and something we can discuss fully maybe some other time. But the idea here is that he's talking about Rome. This is code language for Rome. And by calling Rome Babylon here, what's interesting is I believe that the spirit of Babylon rose from the ashes of the literal Babylon, destroyed by ultimately by time and by the Medo-Persians and the Greeks, and eventually by the time of Jesus, it was a it was erased. Um, and the prophets Isaiah, Ezekiel, and others said it would you couldn't even the shepherds couldn't even find a place. Uh, there would be there'd be no evidence left of Babylon. Yes, but Rome was Babylon. So how does that work? The spirit of Babylon, like a phoenix, rises up out of the ashes of the last Babylon. So I think one world empire after the next, after the next, after the next is Babylon Mm. in some sense. So whatever nation's the most powerful militarily, the most powerful economically, um, there's the spirit of Babylon there. Now, in the 20th century and on to the 21st, it's America. Doesn't mean there there are no Christians. Daniel was in Babylon ministering and effect, uh, affecting it. But I think there's a, a deep theology to Babylon here that Peter uses, very provocative. Anyway, bottom line here is he's calling on all who belong to Christ to the peace that comes from the grace of the gospel. And that's mm. a good way to end. Absolutely. May we stand in that grace. Well, thanks so much, Andy. And this has been ap- episode 10 in the book of First Peter. We want to invite you to join us next time for episode 11 of our Peter Bible Study podcast entitled, 
making your calling and election sure. Where we'll move on to 2 Peter and begin by discussing 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.